1: Feel it coming in the
2: air,
0: hear
3: the screams from everywhere. I'm addicted to the thrill. It's a dangerous love affair. Can't be scared when it goes down. Got a problem? Tell me now. Only thing that's on my mind is who's gonna run this town tonight.
1: Welcome to Carmen Lasser's Sports Talk. Alex Clancy in studio solo today. It is a beautiful Thursday morning here in Phoenix. A lot to talk about. Call me. Might be calling in a little bit later, and I have a couple people lined up that uh, have a chance to call in potentially. But if not, just me. Uh, I'm going to run through a lot of things that have happened in the past two days because we do not have a show on Wednesday as of now, but uh, hopefully soon we will uh, to be going five days a week. Uh, I'm going to start by talking about Arizona Cardinals. Uh, Their playoff scenario isn't as weak as we thought uh, going into last week. So we'll talk about them, we'll run through some NBA, a couple NFL topics that have come out, and um, yeah, I'll finish probably back with some more NBA and uh, maybe touch on the Dallas Cowboys and my idea as to why they're faltering as they always do in December. Uh, First, Arizona Cardinals. There are three things that could happen, three sets of events that could happen that could allow them to sneak into the playoffs this year. Uh, it's understood that they have two very tough games coming up, the Week 16 at Seattle, probably the toughest place to play, maybe tied with the Superdome in New Orleans uh, to go on the road and play at, and then they have Week 17 San Francisco at home. I personally, as a converted Arizona Cardinals fan, that that game matters in Week 17 for a couple reasons. One, I really just want them to see, I really want to see what they're made of, I really want to see if they have the gusto and the cojones to win a game that really matters. Since Kurt Warner's left, there hasn't been really one game that they've played that's mattered this year. uh, They've had a bunch that they've won. They've won games they were supposed to win. Uh, They've gotten blown out a couple times by teams that are definitely superior to them. Uh, New Orleans and uh, Seattle the first time. San Francisco wasn't too close of a game either. They're a different team now. Carson Palmer's starting to get into his groove. He's only thrown three interceptions over the past six games, I believe. After throwing, I believe, 14 in the first eight games. So he's finally starting to become the veteran leader on the field that we had hoped he would be. We knew that turnovers would be an issue, uh, but he's kind of put them aside and and, uh, dove into Bruce Arians' offense High-powered offense and um, really done well recently. So scenario number one: Arizona wins out. This is this is going to be tough, obviously, because going to Seattle, pr- maybe the best team in the NFL, toughest place to play on the road. It, it's a daunting task. Um, but if they win out, they need a little help still. <laughs> they need Carolina to lose one game if they win out. Or they need to win one of the last two games and have Carolina lose both games. So they, Carolina plays at home against New Orleans and then Atlanta. So that, that's a stretch. It's possible, but it's a stretch, especially with Atlanta not making the playoffs uh, for sure and maybe them jockeying for, for a high draft pick or a higher draft pick than they're slated to get right now. Um, so that would be difficult, but who knows? I mean, New Orleans definitely still has something to prove, so going into Carolina, especially with how they played last week, I believe that New Orleans will win that game, so that'll be one, and, and uh, the, Atlanta would have to help a little bit as well for Arizona to get in, because Arizona has the tiebreaker over Carolina with their Week 5 win against them. Uh, scenario two, San Francisco loses to Atlanta Monday night. The Cardinals beat Seattle in Seattle. Week 17, University of Phoenix Stadium, the pl- the team that wins would go to the playoffs, which it, w- it would be my dream scenario because, first of all, not only do I have tickets to the game, but that would put into place my hope of, that the Cardinals will be able to play a game for their fate. To see how far this team really has come and have it not just be fool's gold that, that we're, we're all hoping it isn't. I don't think it is. Uh, it would just be a shame to go 10-6 and six and not make the playoffs. Uh, the third one I think is the most far-fetched would be Arizona has to win out and New Orleans has to lose out. New Orleans has, again, Carolina in Carolina. And I believe they're at home against Tampa Bay to end the season. So, yes, daunting tasks, all three. But at least there's still a chance. At least there's some sort of excitement still in Week 16 in Phoenix, Arizona, with regards to the football team. What does Arizona have to do to beat Seattle? Let's talk about that for a second. First, they have to stop the run. They have to stop Marshawn Lynch from having a big day. You saw St. Louis do it weeks back. They stacked eight in the box the whole game, made Russell Wilson throw the ball, and, and St. Louis almost beat him. It was an ugly game. Say, uh, Seattle ended up winning. However, Marshawn Lynch was a non-factor. So I think that you trust your secondary. You stack you stack the box and make Russell Wilson beat you. you pressure him, pressure him, pressure him. If you're going to lose, lose big. If you're going to lose, go out in a blaze of glory. Blitz, blitz, blitz. And see what Patrick Peterson and the secondary is really made of. Granted, with Teron Matthew out, it's going to be a little bit more difficult. But... That's what I would do. And then on the offensive side of the field, you can't turn the ball over. And again, that's very difficult with one of the best defenses, if not the best in the NFL. Carson Palmer cannot throw two picks. He can't fumble the ball. Unnecessary errors cannot happen. Offense pretty much has to play a perfect game. And this not even taking into account Larry Fitzgerald's uh, concussion situation, Andre Ellington's hurt, Sean Mendenhall's hurt, Carson Palmer's not at 100%. So say all things being equal, everybody plays, no turnovers, and you have to establish the run to a certain extent. Half the clip's 100 yards rushing on the ground. Have to. Keep the secondary honest. Keep the defense as a whole honest. This is the biggest game for the Arizona Cardinals in years. And they have to play like it. They have to play like this is their playoff game. If they win this, it will be a lot easier to slip it to the playoffs. If they lose it I mean it's pretty much a death sentence for them if they lose this game. Granted, yes, they could sneak in in a myriad ways, but I mean this game this game is a must win. I think the main person that needs to perform is Andre Ellington. Fitz will get his he'll, he'll get his targets. He's going to be double teamed. So that'll open up other receivers. Yes, that'll be important. But Andre Ellington is the most electric player on this team. He has great hands. He can catch the ball out of the backfield. He's got great bursts of sp- uh, speed, great first step. He's elusive. We have great blocking wide receivers. Larry Fitzgerald is a very underrated wide receiver for blocking. If Andre Ellington can touch the ball, I mean, I would say touch the ball 30 times, 25 times. Go big. Take chances. But take controlled chances. There's a difference between that and just flinging the ball down the field and hoping it doesn't get intercepted, and hoping Larry Fitzgerald can make a play. It's very different. Be methodical, but take chances. And that's how Bruce Arians has made his name. The offense in Pittsburgh wouldn't have been the same without him. Indianapolis were lucky to have him on to have him on the coaching staff. With the unfortunate uh, thing that happened to uh, Coach Pagano, he needs to be able to reach into his bag of tricks and use the most again electric player that they have to their advantage against a very, very daunting defense. Swing passes, flank him out, put him in the slot, do whatever you need to do, make him Darren Sproles for a day. Because he has the ability to catch the ball on the run, he has the ability to make the first man miss, he has the ability for the big play. And if they can put Seattle on their heels at any point in this game, they have a chance, which is very, very difficult to do. And that starts all the way up with Pete Carroll just having fun. You know, it's scary when you have such a strong defense and a coach that's, that's just so light. He's so passionate, but he has a smile on his face. And that's a very, 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 very deathly combination if, if, if you're the opposing team. So they're going into the Lions' Den. It's going to be loud, they're going to break a record because they still need home field advantage they still need to win they should they still front has a purposes needs to win out because they're expecting New Orleans to win both games at the end of the year so they need to win out this game is not as important but it's it's close to as important for both teams for different reasons I'd obviously rather be Seattle in this situation but Andre Ellington no turnovers by Carson Palmer and stack eight in the box all game. If those three things can happen, I know they're far-fetched. I know that this isn't like, oh, that you know, that's easy to do. It's, it, it's not that type of situation. The Cardinals are definitely the underdog going into Seattle, but if they can do anything close to those three things throughout the course of the 60 minutes, they have a chance. They have a chance. Hold Seattle to field goals in the red zone, Maybe get a defensive... The, the defensive touchdowns have, have kept these guys afloat in games that that were on the brink of potentially losing. Carlos Dansby's had two pick-sixes. Antoine Quezon had one last week. Without that pick-six, they lose that game because Tennessee comes back and wins. So there's excitement in Phoenix, which I'm excited about. They won't be under. They won't underestimate the the Seahawks. But it's a must win. It's a must win. Gotta take a break. Kwame Lasser Sports Talk. Alex Clancy on the other side. I'll talk Tony Romo. I'll Talk the Brandon Browner situation. And uh, interesting Reggie Bush comments coming out of Detroit. Alex Clancy, Kwame Lasser Sports Talk. We'll be back.
2: Your internet flagship station for sports. Voice of is Sports.
1: Arms, arms, arms. Welcome back to Kwame Lazar Sports Talk. Alex Clancy in studio. Just uh, touched on the Arizona Cardinals playoff scenario and how m- much of a must-win it is for them going into Seattle this Sunday. Uh, stay on Seattle. Brandon Browner... Um, he vows to sue the NFL if his ban isn't dropped little backstory he was suspended four games last year for Adderall usage uh, that they still deny uh, him and Richard Sherman um, and now he got popped again for uh, for substance abuse and he's still fighting the ban I, I don't I don't understand the delusions here uh, if, if you break the rules you're suspended I mean that's I, I don't really know why that's so difficult to understand. He was offered somewhat of a a bargain that would have that would have cut the suspension by three months. I think he was um, offered that a few weeks ago or a month ago, and and he did he he said no uh, because that would admit guilt, and you never admit guilt, apparently. Uh he tweeted out thank you for the the thank you to the Seahawks organization, blah 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 blah. Pretty much means that he doesn't think he's gonna be back with the Seahawks next year. I think he's his contract is up after this year. I don't see that out of the realm of possibility that he would come back. I mean obviously Pete Carroll has somewhat of a checkered past that he's eluded, uh starting with USC and then now with the sub I I don't think that Pete Carroll really cares what his players do. I mean, obviously, there's some sort of disconnect between the rules and Pete Carroll. He was just lucky enough to make Lane Kiffin the scapegoat. He left for the he left for the NFL right when he got something whispered in his ear that sanctions were going to come down against USC. So he's very crafty in that regard. Um, I guess if you put a good team on the field, other stuff is kind of overlooked from a moral aspect with regards to the head coach of your franchise. I don't know. I just thought that was kind of interesting. Uh, Reggie Bush came out today and and said that there's a lack of discipline in the Detroit Lions uh, organization. You don't say. You don't say. and and he was quick to say that it had to do with the players and not the coaching staff being very politically correct. Uh, I think it starts with 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 the front office. It starts with who you draft. It starts with who do you bring in. You have a huge list of attributes of each player. And you just choose to overlook some of them because of their supreme talent. Matt Stafford wasn't exactly a perfect quarterback in college. Turn the ball over. You know he's not he's not throwing zero interceptions in a year. You knew what you were going to get with him. Reggie Bush has had a fumbling issue. I mean, it hasn't been pressing like Tiki Barber during the middle of, of during the first few years of his career but it's been an issue. You have running backs that fumble the ball, and you have running backs that don't. And he's one that does. I mean, he, he's, he's, he's tipped, tipped the scale towards being a fumbler now. You have the players on defense that have caused issues in Dominick and Sue. Nick Farrelly's been fine recently. You have these supremely talented guys... And you're seven and seven. There's no reason why this team should be seven and seven if there wasn't some sort of disciplinary issue and you don't discipline yourselves as players. That's not how it works. That's what you have coaches for. So you don't have to think. All you have to all you have to do is use your talent that you've worked so hard to coax and mold yourself into this athlete that can play at the highest level in the most violent sport on the planet. And I don't understand why Reggie would come out and even say this because that would be now he's making attacks on his players on his on his teammates as opposed to the coaches. So I don't know where I don't really know what the end game was that he had in mind for, for coming out and saying this. It's obvious. I don't really know why it's necessary to say out loud. You have a quarterback that turns the ball over a lot. You have the number one receiver in the NFL that drops passes. You have a, you have a great defense. I, I, don't, I don't understand what the disconnect is, and it has to start with the head coach. It has to. There's no doubt in my mind, in my opinion... That Jim Schwartz is what's the problem? Hell, you can fire the quarterbacks coach. Bring somebody in there that'll that'll teach Matt Stafford how to not make throws, how to throw the ball away, instead so of try and make the perfect pass. It's like he's trying to shoot a dart at a bullseye every single time he throws the ball. When dumping it off to to, to your third or fourth uh, receiver in progression would be the more mature move. And his maturation level has never really been brought into question because now he's a veteran, I guess. He has gaudy numbers because they throw the ball a lot. But with the two-back system that they have with Reggie Bush and Joyke Bell, I don't understand why they're not running the ball more either, which cuts down on problems. It cuts down on turnovers. So I don't I don't really know what's going to happen in Detroit. I think Reggie shouldn't have said this, but you know, uh, it is what it is. I guess. I mean, Detroit is just I mean they're they're going into the depths of hell again after looking really really good in the first half of the season. So I don't you know what I'm just happy I'm not a Detroit Detroit uh, Lions fan, <laughs> and uh, we can segue very very organically into this. My idea of why Tony Romo is not to blame in Dallas. If you've listened to this show at all, I've come to his defense most of the time because who would you bring in to play quarterback for the Cowboys that would give you a better chance to win than Tony Romo? I, I mean, I, I've, I've, I can't think of anybody. He always has fantastic numbers. Yes, granted, fourth quarter. He makes, there's a mental problem that he has with toughness. And I'm going to tell you why that is. Jerry Jones has instilled his trust in Tony Romo, which sounds fantastic that your owner says, you know what, I'm going to give you $100 million. You're my quarterback. I don't care what's happened. You know, we, We've played well enough to fill the stadium. And we make a whole lot of money, so I'm happy to pay you the money that I think you deserve. And I think that is a crutch and a stigma that Tony Romo can't get past. He feels like he has to throw the ball a lot to live up to the expectation. He feels like he has to be the one to make a mistake if somebody makes a mistake because he's the leader of the team. It's a very convoluted statement. But I truly believe that. Because if there wasn't added pressure for him, DeMarco Murray would lead the league in rushing. If he felt comfortable or felt like he wouldn't get in trouble for giving the reins to somebody else that would give them a better chance to win in given situations, he would be doing it. And I think Jason Garrett is drinking the same Kool-Aid. Tony Romo is going to win or lose those games. Boom. That's it. Our defense sucks. Everybody knows that, but it's fine because we have Tony Romo. We'll put all the blame on him if we lose. Because he has to throw the ball 78 times a game when DeMarco Murray's averaging 8.9 yards a carry. That's the only thing that I can deduce from this situation. That Jerry Jones is forcing Tony Romo to be the winner or the loser. When you have all of this talent around him, receiver-wise, it's a great cover-up. It's a great cover-up. But you have DeMarco Murray in the backfield. Make him run the ball 30 times a game. I don't understand why that hasn't happened. He's having his breakout year this year. Take two years ago away because he got hurt midway through the year or towards the end. But he's having a fantastic year. He's so, so reliable catching the ball out of the backfield. He's got great eyes for blocking schemes. He knows the offense. You can tell that he knows which way he needs to go with the blocking schemes. He doesn't really improvise all that much. He's not like a Lashawn McCoy or a Matt Forte or Jamal Charles that has that breakaway speed right away but he knows how to follow his blockers and he knows how to break it when he, when he needs to break it. Because we all get to watch this film. We get to rewind and watch, rewind and watch. This is split-second decisions. These are split-second decisions he has to make. And he makes them. He doesn't fumble the ball. I mean, he has a couple times this year, but he hasn't... But he, he needs to carry the ball 30 times a game. And they need to win out now because of the debacle that happened against Green Bay. They need to win the game. They need to win both games. So, with that, DeMarco Murray is the man you need to ride to get there. Prove me wrong. Prove everybody wrong and run the ball. Troy Aikman wouldn't have been the same without Emmett Smith in that offensive line, obviously. That's probably the best offensive line in NFL history. And I've said that before and I'll continue to say it again. Made 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 Emmett Smith's career, and then in turn, Troy Aikman flourished because you have to set up the run to execute the pass, to keep the defense honest. If the defense knows you're going to throw the ball 35 times a game, even with a potential Pro Bowl back in the backfield, they're going to make you make mistakes. And he makes mistakes because he doesn't trust anybody else. And I think that's ringing true. And that starts with, I mean, Jerry Jones doesn't trust anybody else. He's still the GM, he'd be the head coach if he could be. If he was 30 years younger, he'd be the head coach, the owner, and the GM. You need to trust the people around you in order to move forward and succeed. And that is a huge, huge issue with the Dallas Cowboys organization. I will go back to this as I have before. Jimmy Johnson leaving that organization must have told you something. That was one of the best mini-dynasties in NFL history, and Jerry Jones ruined it due to his supreme ego and incessant need to run everything. He is the hand behind, in, in Tony Romo's back, that is just running the puppet. And Je- I don't understand, Jerry Jones just doesn't care He doesn't care what people think, he doesn't care How good his team is, as long as they're relevant Relevancy is Jerry Jones' middle name And that's how he makes his money And that's how he's going to continue to make his money At the detriment of Dallas Cowboys fans And the franchise as a whole With regards to the product they put on the field Man, I'm pissed now Alright, we got to take a break I have my good friend Donovan Files on the line We'll bring him back after the break Miller Files, San Diego Radio um, Alex Clancy, Kwame Lester Sports Talk We'll be back in a minute
2: Sports and medicine go hand-in-hand. Quite simply, if you aren't up to your game health-wise Your internet flagship station for sports, Voice America Sports.
1: Welcome back to Cormier Lasseter Sports Talk. Alex Clancy in studio solo today. Gone across the grid with the NFL. Uh, I have my good friend Donovan Files of the Miller Files radio show in San Diego on the line. Donnie, what's cracking?
3: a whole lot. Just uh, enjoying this uh, fantasy football Super Bowl weekend.
1: Yeah, me too. Are you in both? How many teams? Two. That's beautiful. Yeah, I'm. I'm in both of mine as well. So, I'm excited. Um, We were talking Dallas Cowboys really quickly. Give me your give me your take on it. What do you think is the monkey wrench in the plan of of them proceeding and actually making the playoffs and moving forward with their supreme talent that they have?
3: Well. You you hit it on the head with Jerry Jones wanting to, you know, if this was a certain amount of time ago, he would be on the sidelines, in the front office, and in the owner's box all at the exact same time. That is an absolutely true statement. And that also um, doesn't help them at all because he is such a, I refer to the term superficial, because that's what I think he focuses on is the big, gaudy numbers as opposed to the wins and losses. That's why he gives so much ability to Tony Romo because the superficialness of football is all about the passing game. It's all about the big play. It's not about the Jets running clock management and getting the back-to-back AFC Championship games with Mark Sanchez as their quarterback. That's not Jerry Jones. He's not going to give the ball to DeMarco Murray 30 times a game like he should because the guy is running people over no matter who you put in front of him because Jerry Jones wants the big play the big number he's even gone out to you know bring in the high profile diva wide receiver we have in the nfl this these days in des bryant i mean you think about a few years ago when there was the likes of randy moss and terrell owens that were a weekly a weekly um train wreck to watch you know tony romo uh Des, um, sorry, Terrell Owens crying about Tony Romo and everything. That is what we're getting now with Des Bryant. Watching him go off on his own, te- on his own teammates on the sidelines. And it's not because there's a busted play. It's because the ball's not going to him. You have to know that. And so that's, that my take is that Jerry Jones still runs too much of that show. And he's given too much to Tony Romo. You know, he now, Tony Romo now thinks, it's not on anybody else if we lose. It's gonna be on me. You know, so I'm not going to hand the ball off, anyways. I'm going to keep it in my hands, so that way, even if I do get blamed for it, at least it's actually my fault. Yeah, if that's what Daddy said. So.
1: Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. I, I, the balance level that, that they have is obviously off kill towards the pass, and if that doesn't change, nothing's going to change. I mean, they're yeah. they're not going to make the playoffs. It, it's, I can't believe, and and I I made the prediction at the beginning of the year that. If Demarco Murray plays 14 games or more in the regular season, they'll make the playoffs. He's played 14 games or more, and he's done extremely well. But he's not getting the ball enough, and I don't. And, and I've said that before, and I don't understand what the disconnect is, but there is one. And maybe we'll see what happens uh, this week coming up, and see if they change anything. Okay, I don't want to talk. I don't want to talk about Dallas anymore. Uh, <laughs> I'm done. Okay, um, Terrence Garvin fined twenty five thousand dollars for his for his hit on the Bengals punter Kevin Huber. Uh, one-word answer. Do you think that he deserved the fine? No. Okay. Neither do I. Uh. Well, uh, here's the thing. I I do think he deserved the fine if it would have been on a linebacker. I think that he would not have been fined if it weren't the punter. Um. And this begs the question, and it's been talked about recently, swirling around, that now punters are not able, will not be able to be tackled after they punt. And I believe that that's ridiculous, first of all, because some of the best plays in the NFL during the regular season are punters taking out uh, kick returners. Like, that's the best thing. And that's also a thing that gives them merit for the rest of the team that they're actually quote unquote football players. Because kickers, place kickers, and punters get made fun of a lot for just doing one thing. And if you don't do that well, then you shouldn't be in the NFL. They're not really looked at as NFL players because they're not 6'10, 250, or 6'5", 250 running and, and, and swatting at the quarterback. I think that it's doing a disservice to the team and to punters and the NFL as a whole for not allowing punters and place kickers to be able to tackle guys to stop touchdowns. Do you agree?
3: Absolutely. How how do you even say, okay, now you're going to go ahead and just play 10 versus 11? I'm going to allow all 11 of my guys, or sorry, all 10 of my guys to block and my 11th guy to run the football all the way down in the end zone, but you only get. 10 people to try and tackle that person. You're already putting the kicking team at a disadvantage, and this even goes back a little bit of a slippery slope uh, trickling down from moving the kickoff forward five yards. You know, that already sets in your mind that they're trying. There have been talks even to do away with kickoffs completely.
1: All
3: right. It's just going to be, you know, schoolyard football, everybody just starts at the twenty. And that it's it's horrible to see. You know, I mean, being from San Diego, I know about Darren Bennett and the things that Aussie rules football can bring to the NFL. And some of the greatest hits, like you say, some of the things I remember the most of each season is a punter laying out a good returner. You know that that's a play that you're going to remember after this season happens. So it's 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 sad to see this happen, but um, I would also argue to say that the the fine might not be there if the punter hadn't broken his um, broken his jaw out for the rest of the season maybe he still gets it um given that he's a punter as opposed to a linebacker i completely agree with that statement but i also still like this is magnified because this punter is missing the remainder of the season
1: yeah no absolutely and with punt returns punt returns are, are returned a less percentage of the time than kick returns, so normally the last line of defense is going to be the player, the, the the kicker that kicks off, which is usually your place kicker and not your punter. So this, and he also, Kevin Huber, in, in this situation, was up at the forty yard line, like he was ready to engage to tackle the returner to ta- to tackle Antonio Brown if need be. So, you can't take the power away from somebody that wants to do what they're doing. And you have to know as a punter that you're gonna have to do this. What are you gonna go? Tag in somebody? Go tag in a, tag in a DB that's not on the special teams team and, special teams team? On special teams and, and have him run in and try to be the last line of defense before the, before the kick returner runs by him. Like, I don't, it, this can't happen. There's no way that this can happen feasibly. Um, but the NFL is, moved around that that statement many times in uh in the past and pretty much more recently with just trying to just instill more of an idea of player safety and that's what they did with the kick returns or the the kickoffs moving them up 5 yards. So this is a lose lose situation for the NFL um one of many that that they've been in in recent history and uh we'll we'll see what happens. I I think this is a non story um but at least flag the guy on the field because he he laid somebody out. He took his helmet under the to the chin of to the chin of another player. It Doesn't matter if it's a punter or not to another player. You, you give him a personal um, a personal foul flag and you move on. I mean, I think that's that's really what should have happened. But it's all about money now in the NFL, and uh, and um, Mr. Garvin's wallet is definitely lighter now. Oh man, I don't even know what to talk about with that. I mean, th- there's no. There's no solution.
3: There isn't. When you, when you think about removing an opportunity for a player to make a tackle, and it's, it's silly to say, but what does he go and do? Tag someone in, like you said. He basically he has to stay in his maybe bubble, and he can't move within a five-yard radius or something like that. So then you're going to get punters trying to organize themselves in a certain area where they think they're going to get in the way almost to allow someone else to make a tackle or something. This is such an outlandish idea to allow someone to be on the field for the beginning of the play, but then restrict their abilities come the middle of the play to make a tackle. And and what's to say that punter coming down, being the last line of defense, doesn't go ahead and just make a tackle and take a 15-yard penalty. I do know that the NFL does have in place a rule where you can award someone a touchdown, given this, a certain situation like this happens. But then you bring in human error into everything, which is what we've tried to avoid with the likes of uh, instant replay and, and penalties that, you know, no force out rule or anything. They're trying to make it as black and white as possible with as little amount of gray area for a human to make the call. Everything is, uh, the opportunity is to make everything black and white. Whereas you're going to have a punter punt the ball and tell him he can only go in certain areas, but you can't make a play at the ball. It's ridiculous.
1: Yeah, I mean, and and even more so that uh, people in the NFL front office, they're looking at this stuff 100 times when everybody on the field is making split-second decisions. So it's, there's there's a major, the two things are not parallel. Like you can't. You can't convert one into the other. You can't convert split-second decisions into watching the same play a hundred times and making a call on it. It's just, it. this is going to be an issue forever until people start playing flag football. And then even then, it's, I mean, it, this will never end. When Roger Goodell went out and said, we're going we're gonna to instill player safety into the makeup of the NFL, everything went haywire. And, it's, and I feel like it's not necessarily his fault for changing this game to give people quality of life after they retire, which I and I've backed him up for that ad nauseum. Every time we talk about this, I back him up for what he's trying to do, for what he's trying to do, and change is always questioned, especially in such a violent sport as this. People know what they're signing up for when they, when they play high school, when they play college. No, they don't. I'm sick and tired of people saying that. You know what you signed up for? You have no idea what the NFL's like until you get there. You have no idea what it's like to get hit by Ray Lewis until you get hit by Ray Lewis. You're playing against a freshman offensive lineman who's majoring in engineering that happens to be 300 pounds, so he's playing college football. It's not even close to the same. The bodily harm that can be put on you in the NFL far outweighs what can happen in college. Every time your head hits the ground, that could be a potential concussion. And that's what you've had to deal with your whole life. But now it's it's even under, it's under more, it's just more strength. There's so many, so many more things could go wrong in the NFL that, than anywhere else. And I really don't think the people signed up for what they, what they thought they did to the extent when they get into the NFL. I just don't. I just don't, it's easy for me to say because I'm sitting here in, a, in an air-conditioned studio talking about it. But I, I truly don't think that, that the full extent of, of what they're being subjected to is, is known in the forefront uh, of their decision to go to the NFL.
3: Definitely agreed on that standpoint. But to say someone doesn't necessarily know what they're getting themselves into is naïve. Coming from someone who's who only maximized their level at high school football, I mean, knowing just what I went through in that aspect, to not expect, you know, exponential differences from one level to the next. Just from JV junior varsity to a varsity level, you see exponential speed increases. You see uh, muscle increases and the ability to get hit a lot harder. If you don't think that that is, you know, tenfold at every single level you jump up then I think it's naive on the player's part to assume that there's nothing, you know, they've reached their most dangerous level, if you will. You know, and this whole trickle down from, you know, all the uh, older players and everything like that, trying to improve their their, um, quality of life at this point in time, I really think a lot of it comes actually back to moms not letting their kids play football anymore because of what all this is happening. and I, There's a lot more to do with the younger population and the effects that's happening to them or what we think might
1: be happening to them at a younger age. So you think it's too late for the guys in the NFL now? Absolutely. So you think would, would, even, even through college, that they play one year in the NFL? I, I mean, I guess, it, but that's taking away, that's dehumanizing them now. That's making them robotic just because... It's too. It's, they're too far gone. So they're not going to be able to walk after the age of forty-five. They're not going. They're not going to be able to to talk or remember anything after the age of fifty. It's too late.
3: You you have to realize those are very very. I, I understood that there are a lot of people out there, but there are a lot more football players out there that don't experience all of these issues. Right. You'll see a lot of the veterans even on TV. Warren Sapp is doing you know four different television shows on the regular, and he was a defensive lineman his entire career, and a very good one at that. So you take certain examples and you focus on the bad, you focus on the negative, and I'm not saying that any of this is acceptable, I'm just, the root of the problem is followed around the younger population and the fact that football, football is diminishing because people aren't allowing their children to play football anymore because of what's happening to this. That is where it is. You have to start from the root come from the bottom up and allow these people to know what they're getting themselves into. And force, don't make any of these educational um, options when these rookies come in optional. They're not optional anymore. They are required in order to keep your head on straight and allow yourself. A lot of these things come from a multitude of things. You know, a lot of professional athletes go bankrupt within three years. You don't think that has an effect on depression and, and where you send your mind after that type of thing happens. There's a lot more into this than just the head trauma, and we're taking too much of a great sport away because of the backlash from it all.
1: Yeah, I I just still think that it's going to be unfair either to the fans or to the players or to both. both. Um, yeah, both. I, I mean that's fine. I still don't see. I, it doesn't affect me personally when somebody gets fined 25 grand. So there's definitely there's definitely I've used this word a lot today a disconnect between actually playing in the NFL and watching and covering it because $25,000 is a lot of money. To me it's like, "Oh, okay, well that's not that much." You know, so it's there're going to be things that we'll never be able to relate to with with professional athletes. And yeah. and I think that with with this stuff of player safety, I'm all for it. I am. I think that suspending a player with pay I believe that would be a better ramification for a bad hit than finding them and letting them play. I think that would hurt the team more. Hurting the pocketbook. Money, I, watch, I watched Blow a couple days ago. Money isn't real. You know, like with this, especially with people that make all this kind of money, it's, it's, not, being a, it, it's not a detriment to the team if you allow the player to play the next week. If you find them, their, their pocketbook's a little bit lighter, that's fine. But it doesn't really solve anything. If you pull, say, you, you pull your f- best linebacker off the field in an important game week 16 because he had a bad hit the week before, that means something. That might keep people from doing it again. Which could cause further injury, which could cause less injury. We don't know. This is all, we're flying by the seat of our pants here. And I agree with you that pulling kids out of uh, football before it starts... Yes, that's the starting point, but we're so far past that in our day and age now that if your kid is big growing up, is taller and weighs more than the other kids, they're not going to play baseball, they're not going to play basketball, they're going to play football. That's just what it is. So there's so many uncertainties, so many loose ends that need to be sewn up that might never be, and that's where we are now. I mean, that would pretty much is... As convoluted as my statement just was, that's the world that we live in with regards to football. So, I mean, I, I just don't, I don't know what the next step is. I don't know what the correct step is. I do think that suspending a player for a game, with or without pay, is more effective than just fining them. I do that, believe that.
3: Absolutely. You think about a few years ago and some of the history that we've had in this when James Harrison received, I believe it was, three or four uh, different one of the, I think, 75000 Yeah, that was nine, the big one. You know, the huge, huge year he had. Potentially, the way you're playing it, is he missed four, misses four games that season. And that's a playoff contender. That's a Super Bowl winner right there. You think about um, Merriweather, just a couple of years ago on the Patriots with that really rough hit that he had. You suspend him for a game. You take a team that ends up in the Super Bowl missing their starting safety. That's a great, great resolution to what uh, or a great next step to take in in this problem is a suspension with pay, as opposed to a a pocketbook that happens to be twenty five thousand dollars, when the league minimum is over six hundred thousand. Twenty five grand is a day in tips for a server. Yeah, if you think of it that way.
1: Yeah. No. No. It is. I mean,
3: it's one shift. That's all it is.
1: <laughs> it's a lot of big wave burgers, man. Uh, <laughs> Um, All right, I do want to talk about the NBA. We have about 10 minutes left. A little segue. Heat Pacers last night. Heat come back from 15 down with six minutes left in the third quarter to win at home. LeBron was game-time decision to play. Everybody knew he was going to play. There was a questionable call at the end of the game. Paul George went up for a three-pointer. LeBron James was trailing him. And you could see LeBron use his left hand on uh, on Paul George's side to kind of slightly sway him while he was mid-air taking the last shot. Um, Paul George flipped out, said said it was a foul, blah, blah blah, cry, cry, whine. Don't give up a 15 point lead with six minutes left on Miami's home floor. That's, that's, uh, that's my rant for that, my mini rant. The main crux of this is veteran leadership has become so important in the NBA that it, that it wins close games now, like more than ever in my in my short basketball uh, life of you know 30 years with regards to the the, the inception, I see veteran leadership at ends of games ringing true more and more every day. And you see it with Miami, and everybody on that team is a veteran now of the big three. You know, LeBron James, they, he jumped over the hurdle that plagued him through the first few years of his career, not being able to finish games, not being able to finish games, and now he does. They went on a sick run at the end of the game to win. Um... Indiana doesn't have that. David West hasn't won anything. And I'm a firm believer that until you win something or get close to winning something, you don't have veteran leadership. Just because you've been in the league a lot many years doesn't mean that you know how to win close games, that you know how to put your team into position to win close games. You have to at least taste the NBA Finals as a veteran to lend any sort of knowledge on younger players on your team. And I truly believe that, and that goes even to the head coach. So Indiana hasn't been able to beat Miami in the playoffs. So the veteran leadership isn't there; it's not there. So I mean, that's that's really what I think. And, and Donnie, do you have anything to say? Like, do you think that this is just one game in, the, in December that doesn't mean anything, or do you of think that? Of course not. Of okay. course not.
3: You know, and the way that the Heat were making it sound before the game is that it was just another game. I, I'm sure it was. I'm sure they take their season. They're long, long season, one game at a time. That's what a team should do. You shouldn't walk in, you know, in August and September and circle a game in December that, you know, is a game in the middle of the season. When your game before that ends, then you circle the next. That's what I say about the response to the game happening and everything like that. When it goes to veteran leadership, it's a situation in basketball where you watch a lot of teams, a lot of very good teams, like the Miami Heat. Keep in games. It's almost like watching Michael Phelps swim a race. You'll see him be in third or fourth going into the final, final leg of his, of his swim meet. And he'll blow people away in that final. It's all about managing your abilities and waiting for that burst, that opportunity. And veterans know when that opportunity opens and they take it and they run through it. And you also have these veterans, as you named, uh, James and Bosch and Wade, they all are veterans together now they've all experienced the top and they've also de- experienced defeat when they didn't win it the first time they were there so these guys not only have reached the top together but they've also fell into the depths together even though losing the finals isn't considered necessarily the depths yeah but for a team like this that would be anything but winning a championship for the miami heat is the depths.
1: absolutely and especially especially with all experienced uh,
3: it together now
1: yeah especially with lebron james looming uh contract up at the end of the year and, and and Dwayne Wade, his health deteriorating, he's not playing back-to-back games this year. Um, this was a big win for them. This, this win, especially in the Eastern Conference when the Pacers and the Heat combined still have less losses than the yeah. third-place team. Um, it, so, uh, you know, it, the Eastern Conference has been kind of a, a mockery of basketball this year and these two teams being at the top. This game meant something Um, I think that your body of work obviously means the most during the regular season but there there are little games that mean a little bit more than others Uh, and I I especially think that if this game was in Indiana I feel like LeBron would have sat because I feel like he would have said this game means nothing to us you're no competition to us and we're going to we're going to treat it as such this is what San Antonio did when they went to Miami, they, last year, they sat all three of their starters. They sat Ginobili, Tim Duncan, and Tony Parker. Because they were like, this game doesn't matter. You can hype this up. This is a Friday night game on ESPN. This is the only time we play this year. But it doesn't matter. So, I mean, there's definitely different, different theories behind it. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's just another regular season game. And, and Miami looked fine. You know, Dwayne Wade had a, had a season-high 32. Uh, LeBron James had 21 on a, on a bum ankle. Um, But going forward, managing minutes for Dwayne Wade, managing minutes for LeBron when he's hobbled, um, should yield them another finals appearance and potentially another championship, which hopefully for Miami Heat fans will keep LeBron James there. I'm not sure if that will happen. Uh, Only time will tell, but um, I don't know. I just don't see Miami being a powerhouse for years and years to come, and I think LeBron would want to finish his career where that history is already deeply ingrained in the city that he's going to go play in, Los Angeles Lakers. Um, uh, I was
3: was waiting for you to say that.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, well, yeah. So I'm happy that we have to leave now so we don't have to talk about that. Um, 30 seconds left. Donovan Files, follow him at Donovan Files on Twitter, palomar.edu backslash kksm. Uh, the Miller Files. I think you guys are done for uh, for a couple months, right? But you'll be back. We,
3: we've we've uh, we've got about a three week break. We'll be back on uh, around the middle of uh, January on AM thirteen twenty KKSM.
1: Yeah, check them out. Follow them on Twitter, and you'll be able to see when that show will be back. Uh, we'll talk about the Suns tomorrow. We didn't get a chance to talk to them talk about them today. Um, Alex Clancy, Kwame Lasser, Sports Talk. I will be solo again tomorrow, ten a.m. Check it out, Kwame Lasser, Sports Talk. We'll see you tomorrow.